Amen. What a good morning. Beautiful outside, beautiful in here. And one announcement, two announcements. One is that the, if you've ordered flowers, they're going to be outside after the morning services only. And uh, you can pick those up after the service. And then also they got a table out there that the youth are selling. Sounds like homemade uh, chocolate-covered, I think, uh, macaroons or... Anyways, there's candies out there for you if you want to purchase them and help them out in their fundraiser as well. And we want to wish all you mothers a happy Mother's Day. Yes. Amen. You know, it's the funniest thing. You know, there's things in life we don't think about. And when Pastor Paul asked me to speak on Mother's Day, I thought, oh, yeah, that'd be great. And I started reading about uh, Mother's Day and started reading about all the different circumstances that you women go through, good, bad, and the ugly. And boy, there's a, it's a, quite a thing out there. It's quite a thing to try to think about preaching on Mother's Day. So I thought, I'm not going to preach on Mother's Day. Or, I'm not preaching a Mother's Day sermon. I'm just saying, happy Mother's Day. And I want you to know, just a little of a snippet here, that uh, you're appreciated. You know, even if you don't feel like you're appreciated, you're appreciated and you're loved so much. I want to encourage you that, you know, in the midst of our families, when our families, you know, like in your mind, okay, like we feel like sometimes that when our families are struggling, we're fighting and we're bickering and, you know, we're busy and tensions around the home, when all that's happening and going on, you know, you got to stop and just say, thank you, Jesus. In the midst of all of that, because that is just life happening. And I've said, you know, before to people that, you know, when you're having the struggles like that and you're talking about it and you're resolving issues, that's a functional family. That's how it works. But when we're fighting and wrestling like that and we're not talking to each other and we're not resolving the issues, that borders on the dysfunctional family. We need to come together. We need to teach our kids how to resolve issues and so as couples, we need to come together and resolve issues. And we can do that when we have Christ at the center. And when he's at the center, it's like, okay, what's he asking of me here? And I don't want to do that, but, you know, what's he asking of me? And as we do that with each other, it humbles us, you know, because we see the other person doing it for us. But I want to encourage you that you're loved. Because I can remember, like, when I was 16 years old, the impact that my mom had on my life. I quit school when I was 15, and so I was never, I wasn't around from the time I was probably 12. I came out to Alberta when I was 12 years old. I can't believe it. 12 years old, I got on a bus, and I come to Alberta, and I got out of Lacombe. I never had a clue where I was going, where I was really at, and I, I, I got off the bus, started walking down the road, highway. Well, I asked somebody, you know, which way is Bentley? because that's where all my relatives were. So I got off the bus and I started walking towards Bentley. I walked probably three miles and I was down in the ditch having a cigarette, 12 years old. And, it, and, and then his car pulls up and uh, asks if I want to ride. And he says, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to Bentley. Walking, no idea. You know, look home to Bentley. It's like 15 kilometers or more. So I get in this car with this guy and he drops me off in Bentley, but... Anyways, that's how independent I was, and it, from the time I quit school, and probably earlier, I was never at home, never around, and I know mom knew what I was up to. She knew that I was up to no good. She could see, 
you know, the problems that would, potential problems that were going to happen if I didn't change because of the stuff I was involved in and never being around. And I knew my parents loved me, but I had a, a, when I was 16, we had a birthday party out there. My grandpa and grandma were out there from uh, Bentley in Vancouver. My grandpa's birthday's in January, so we had a little party. And uh, this is one of the few nights I remember of my teen years, but, you know, we were sitting around the table and pictures of grandpa and, and myself together. And then my mom gave me a card, and it's on this card, you know, it just says the typical stuff that, you know, that you're loved and appreciated and stuff like that. But then what she wrote in the card, she wrote these simple words, and they really kind of struck me. She said, uh, she said that she loved me, and she wanted me to know that whenever I turned towards home, there would always be open arms to welcome me. And that made an impact on me to the point that I never forgot it. And I, and I don't know, from that moment on, I don't know what that was, but it struck something in me toward my mom knowing that she loved me in spite of what I was doing and who I was at the time. And, uh, you know, just so mothers take heart. You know, our kids cannot really appreciate what they have because they don't know any different. You know, I, didn't, I couldn't appreciate my mom at that time because you don't know any different, you know. And teenagers are discovering there's a world out there. They're getting independent and they're praying hard because you know the potential for them. Praying that they stay away and be wise with the drugs because stuff that stuff can make such a difference in our lives. But you know, God is faithful. He's faithful. We just need our fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous person or powerful and effective. I say it all the time, but I believe it. You know, I believe it to be true. So you're loved, mothers. And you might feel like you're not appreciated sometimes, but you're very much appreciated. And I pray that God shows you that. And husbands, pick it up. <laughs> Love your wives. You know, there's a book called Love Languages. It talks about how we express our love is generally how we expect to be expressed towards us. The crazy thing is that two people are attracted to each other, they're opposites. And so we're showing love this way because this is how we know love. They're showing love this way because that's the way they know it. But what we need to do is say, okay, how are they showing me that they love me? And then show them that way back. And uh, it's an amazing thing, but... You know, it's just the way God made it. It's like, man, oh man, we got a lot to learn. But it helps in our relationships. So the text, there's no slides this morning. There's Bibles in front of you. And I've, hopefully, I've taken all these texts out of the NIV translation, which is in the pews. So you can follow along. And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 9 and 10 in there. Our main text being Luke uh, chapter 10, verse 24. You know, whether we believe it or not, uh, whether we believe we are in the sweet spot of walking out God's will for our lives or we're in the process of figuring that out and we're growing towards that. You know, we've got to recognize that we, what we as believers really are all about. We're in this world, but we're not to be of this world. We're in this world, but we're different. We're different because it's Jesus' righteousness that is the to be the standards for which we live and make decisions. You know, Sidney Simon, a pioneer figure in the education world, a professor of the University of Massachusetts, he's known as the father of what's called values clarification. He claims that if you know which things in your life are negotiable and which are essential, 
that you're at an advantage. And it's true. You know, all the decisions are simplified once you know what's really important to you. And it seems that clarifying our values would help all of us in when we have these aha moments in life. Now, there was a man who was audibly praying in church. And he says, oh, Lord, make me successful, but keep me humble. And his wife overheard his prayer, and she was prompt to respond, and she said, oh, Lord, you make him successful, and I'll keep him humble. (laughs) Now, at any rate, this man had a clear understanding of what he wanted most from God. For him, success was the essential ingredient of life, but he had the wisdom to know and recognize that he needed to be humble. He needed humility. One thing that, was, uh, that would be good for all of us is to keep in mind is that when we think about success, we need to think and, and recognize the success in God's eyes and the success in the world's eyes have two very different outcomes. You know, Joshua... He set out a challenge before the Israelites as they are settling into the promised land. And he was coming to the end of his life. And so he gathered the elders together and he says, now I am about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the promises that the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise he has fulfilled, not one has failed. He was on to say, if you decide that it is a bad thing to worship God, then choose a God you'd rather serve and do it today. Choose one of the gods your ancestors worshiped from the country beyond the river or one of the gods of the Amorites whose land you are now living. And then Joshua says, as for me and my family, we're gonna worship the Lord. The priority and the values in Joshua's life were very clear in his mind for his family and himself. sometimes we look at these heroes of the faith and we think, yeah, but, you know, that's Joshua. Look what he did. We think, you know, that's that's Abraham, that's that's Jacob. You know, the experiences they had, you know, but, you know, the text that we're looking at in Luke chapter 10, verse 23, listen to what this says. It says, then he, Jesus, turned to his disciples and he said privately, he said, blessed are, your, are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. You know, when we become so familiar with something like our walk with the Lord, it gets hard for us to appreciate it. Just like our kids and us as parents You know, it's very hard for them to appreciate what they have. And really, you know, until they have kids, they really can't. It seems to me my father-in-law, you know, just before he was dying in his last, say, couple of years of his life, I remember him saying it. It was like like one of those aha moments for him. My mother worked so hard because he was one of 13 kids, I think it was. No? Eight kids. Well, eight. That's a lot of kids still. (laughs) One of eight kids. And he... You know, like you could tell, as he, when he mentioned it, he had been pondering on this. And he was just then, in his mid-80s, really appreciating everything that his mother did for him. <laughs> you know, he probably never had time to tell her that how much he appreciated her. He probably did, but you get my point here. You know, we can't appreciate stuff that we're so familiar with. You know, we're living scripture right now, just like these heroes of the faith were then. 
You know, how privileged are we to have the Holy Spirit living within us? They never had the Holy Spirit living within them. You know, what we're living is every bit as exciting as the life of Daniel or Isaac or the Israelites coming into the promised land. We have that walk with God that they had. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So now Luke's gospel here, at this point, about chapter 9, 10 here, Jesus has been working with the disciples for about three, three and a half years, and he's been working with them to convince them of who he was, that he was the Messiah that they'd all been waiting for. He was teaching them the reality of the truth of the kingdom of God and that it was very different than the kingdoms of this world. He was calling for a change in their mindsets. He was calling for a change in the way that they interpreted life. He was calling for a change in the way that they understood the way things, why things were the way that they were. And he was calling for a complete change in their mindsets of understanding that God's ways are not their ways and our, their thoughts were not his thoughts. And Jesus is teaching his followers here how to do ministry in chapter 10 and down we see here. So life, or Lucas in his gospel, he shifts his emphasis here from writing in, about all the miracles that Jesus did right up till chapter 10. And then he's switching his emphasis and he starts, he's talking from here on, he's talking about all the teachings that Jesus taught. In order to really grasp what I want to talk about here, I want to really mainly talk from verse uh, uh, seven, uh, chapter 10, verse 17 through 24. And then really, in order to get a grasp on that, we need to go back into chapter 9, and we go to verse 20, uh, 35, and here we see the, the story about the man, Mount of Transfiguration. These guys were learning that the Messiah meant something different than their political dreams. It's something that I think we could take a little bit of a, a hearing of. That Jesus means something different than our political dreams. They were going to learn that the Messiah would face betrayal, death and resurrection, and that Jesus was teaching them that he is, his disciples must follow uh, with their cross to Calvary. This was forcing the, these guys to make a decision. Did they believe that Jesus' mission was more important than life itself? Did they want to sit on the thrones of the world or did they want to see the kingdom of God? Jesus inspired three of these men to make this decision by letting them see his transfiguration in, in heavenly glory among two major heroes of the faith, of Israel's faith, Moses, the lawgiver, and the prophet Elijah. No small thing. They heard God's voice say, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And this is a time when heaven and earth intersected. And at this time, they saw Jesus speaking to Moses and Elijah. Like, what a thing to see. What a thing to be a part of. You know, to hear that conversation, what was going on? What were they talking about? Verse 30 to 32 here, we see a little bit about what they were talking about. It says that the two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. It's amazing, these guys, eh? 
in these crucial moments, like just like, wow, things going on, and they're sleepy. You think of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was sweating drops of blood, and he's in, just intense because he knows he's on his way to the cross to suffer at the hands of men. And at that time, they were sleepy too. Like It's like, okay, Lord, you know, are you putting these guys to sleep, or are they just overworked? But Peter and his companions, they were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. You know, as I was imagining this scene and I was thinking of these guys, you got these three guys over here and I don't know how far Jesus was, but you know, he's standing over here and they're looking and they're seeing Moses and and Elijah, or Moses and, who was it? Yeah, anyway. (laughs) Standing over here talking and it made me, it just put a picture in my mind of when I was a young guy and, in a construction, and uh, in the construction, we were pouring just about every day. We were pouring, you know, twenty to thirty-five thousand square foot floors. <laughs> Exhausting work, but day after day, we were doing this. And and as we're working, slaving away, there's you know like thirty guys working in different parts of this pour. And you notice these huddle of guys standing off to the side, and they got the white hard hats on and the leather jackets on. And you're thinking, I'm thinking to myself, I want to be one of those guys over there. <laughs> I don't want to be one of these guys sweating over here while they're standing there talking, drinking coffee. And uh, I can remember thinking, you know, when you're seeing these guys looking over there, you know, in your mind as a young man and as your mind in the natural, it's like, hey, like that's success. They've, whether they were here or whatever, carpenters or electricians, whatever they were doing, they're over there and I'm slaving away over here. There's something wrong with this picture. I want to be over there. And, so as a young guy, you think, okay, that's a picture of success. And just like the disciples, you know, as they're watching Jesus, and they're sitting over here, and Jesus and, the, and these guys are over here, you know, they weren't ready to be standing over here with Jesus just yet. That becomes very clear when he grows to the cross, and he's betrayed by all of them. But, you know, like Moses or uh, Peter, he liked this. He thought, wow, this is good here. Notice what he says here. In verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 33, he says, As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. He liked what was going on. He says, Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He wanted to camp there. You know, it's just like we do when God starts to move among, in amongst us. But, you know, Peter, obviously, and we see this as we go along in the scriptures, he had no idea what was going on here. He had no idea the intensity and the pressure and the things that were coming down the pipe here in just, in just a few days. You know, but what an experience, standing there with Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And while Peter was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. It must have been a pretty heavy-duty cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. So these guys were having these amazing, life-changing experiences for the past three years with Jesus, and yet they still had no idea what was really going on. The rubber was about to hit the road in the life of Jesus, and he was preparing to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die at the hands of men. Jesus knew what he was in for. Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they come down off the mountain from this amazing experience and it's at this point where the gospel starts to switch over to Jesus' teaching. But he's turning his attention to, Luke is turning his attention to the readers 
as Jesus was turning his attention to Jerusalem, getting to prepare to face his persecutors. And when they came down off the mountain, there's quite a commotion going on with his disciples. Remember the story of the disciples trying to cast this demon out of this young boy and not being able to do it, and the father being distraught because the disciples couldn't deliver his son from this demon, and Jesus sets him free. But, you know, Jesus, he could see his he comments on his frustration with their disbelief. And then so Jesus takes care of this, does this miracle, and people are just amazed at it, like, wow, what Jesus had just done. Jesus and the disciples have come down from the mountain. Jesus had just met with Moses and Elijah, and he's, and he's you know, he knows because they, they met and talked about his departure. He's going down to Jerusalem to fulfill the prophets, what they had said about a suffering Messiah. He knows he's going down to Jerusalem to, to suffer at the hands of men. And then it says in, in 43, 45 there, it says, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, you know, like that's the way we are. We're just marveling at what Jesus did. Jesus pulls his disciples aside. And you know, at this time, this is really on his heart. And now Jesus was preparing, you know, these guys for what was coming. He was working with them. And he had just been with Moses and Elijah. He knows his crucifixion is coming and he knows what this all means. And so he takes his disciples aside and he says in verse 44, he says, okay, you guys. He says, well, the okay, you guys is mine. Okay, you guys. He says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. It's like, you know, that picture of grabbing your grandkids by the face and saying, listen to me. I got something very important to tell you. So listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. He tells them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. You know, this obviously would be working on him. And then these guys, it's amazing and it's obvious. And Luke puts this in here to show us these guys have no idea what's coming on. Because Jesus is teaching about them, talking to them about the necessity of the betrayal and the death. And it just wasn't making sense to the disciples because look what Luke writes in verse 46. It says, an argument started among the disciples about which one of them was going to be the greatest. Aren't we amazing? You know, Jesus is, knows where he's going, trying to tell these guys, but they couldn't understand it. And I can just see Jesus thinking, oh, how is he going to get it through to these guys? But as time approaches, verse 51, it says, as time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Here the focus of Luke's gospel changes and Jesus' exodus from this world begins. So moving up to verse one of chapter 10, Jesus is on a mission. He's preaching the kingdom of God in the towns and villages on the way to Jerusalem to meet death. The road to Jerusalem and Calvary dominates the thoughts of, the, of Luke here uh, in his sayings and teachings. And Luke notes that Jesus' ultimate destiny was to be taken to heaven, but Christ's road to heaven leads through Golgotha, Calvary, and the tomb. So verse 1 says that after this, the Lord appointed 72 others, sent them in two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. <clears throat> and he told them that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Go, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. 
When Jesus says, ask the Lord to send workers of the harvest, notice that he implied that the ones asking were also the ones to go. We are all workers of the harvest. And to go out into this harvest field that is so ripe all around us. Comfort has very little to do with the whole picture. Their mission was dangerous. They were like lambs going out among wolves. We have to accept that fact that it's not, it is a dangerous mission, but it's amazing. Jesus promises that the enemy won't harm us. Our mission is dangerous, and he has told us to go, and we are like these lambs among wolves. He required haste. They were not to greet anyone along the way. They were to get to the city and preach that the Messiah was coming and that he was bringing the kingdom of God. It was through hospitality that people would show whether they were accepting the message or not. You know, but notice too, even the cities that rejected the message were to be told that the kingdom was near. You know, we tend to shrug off, oh, I'm not comfortable witnessing. We can't, we got no choice. It's our job as believers is to be a witness. You know, this, as I was going through this, I thought of the soapbox preachers. My, there was a, a soapbox preacher in Edmonton and, and Javen and his family were going to the West Edmonton Mall and they, they drove by this soapbox preacher and one of the grandkids puts his head down and he says, you know, he says, oh, he says, you know, stop that, you're embarrassing us. And I say, praise God for the soapbox preachers, you know, because they're doing what they think God is telling them to do. That wouldn't be easy no matter who you are, standing on the streets preaching the gospel we were down in Las Vegas uh, at a world of concrete. We were walking down the streets. The streets were packed. Like they were packed and they were probably, I don't know what, eight feet wide and, and people going both ways. And here right in the center, there's this young guy standing on a box and he's preaching the gospel and he's preaching, you know, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <laughs> and I say, praise God for the soapbox preachers. And I say, praise God, he's not asked me to do that. <laughs> But, you know, I'd go and see these soapbox preachers. I want to go over and give them money. I want to say, God bless you. Keep going. Preach it. Do it. Go for it. Because that's what they believe God has called them to do. And God bless them for doing what they feel that God has told them to do, regardless of, what, of the cost of that. God bless everyone who does what they feel that God is telling them to do with their lives So in verses 17 through 24 here, we see that Jesus is challenging these guys with what it is that they were getting so excited about because they had just been 72, had been sent out to preach the gospel, prepare the way for the Lord, the Messiah is coming, the kingdom of God is coming, and then they come back and they're all excited. And he's, uh, the things that they're excited about in the ministry, it says that they returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons uh, submit to us in your name. That's what they were excited about. That's casting out these demons. They came back so excited and Jesus challenges them and he's saying to them, this is not what they should be getting excited about. Rather, they should be most excited that their names are written in, the, in heaven. You know, and I've, I've seen this kind of thing happen. God begins to move, you know, like in our midst as the church. I'm not saying here. I'm saying as the church. And, you know, we, we're in a time of prayer and repentance. We're seeking God. 
And then all of a sudden, God reaches out in some special way, confirming that what we're doing, we're on the right track. We get so excited, and rightfully so. We should get excited about that when we see God starting to move in our midst. But the thing is, we eventually, it seems like we get our eyes off of what has gotten to that, us to that place. And we start to put our eyes onto the gifts or onto the wonders that God is doing around us. And then people are, you know, it's just human nature. We just sort of begin to start to mess things up. We start to mess things up. People start to get offended. And then all of a sudden, what has attracted us, all of a sudden, it becomes a problem. It's amazing how it works. It's amazing. It's a miracle. One of the biggest miracles in all, there's a church 2,000 years after Jesus was crucified. There's still a church. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. Thank goodness for that. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the powers of the enemy. That's just a given. We have the authority over the powers of the enemy, all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Jesus mentions somewhere, he says, don't fear those that can kill the body. Fear him who can throw your, kill the body and throw your soul in hell. Demons submitting to the believer, it pales in comparison to having our name written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 20 says, however, Jesus says, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rather that your names are written in heaven. This is what really matters. This is the miracle of miracles. The Luke's parable about the lost coin, it says that in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. You know, and then Jesus' response in this is interesting. In verse 21, he says, At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, he said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. It's amazing how God has taken the truth, and it's right out there in the open for everyone to see. You can't deny that it's not right there for everyone. And yet the proud can't accept it. What an amazing father he is. He's a perfect father and we are so privileged to be his children. Verse 22, all things have been committed to me by the, my father. No one knows of son except the father and no one knows of father except the son and those whom the son chooses to reveal him. So all of that, we cannot allow ourselves to get so familiar with our, in our walk with God that we take it for granted. We have to get into this sweet spot of walking in the will of God, having him at the center of everything about our lives. I'm not sure how you're feeling about God and his promises to you in your life. But I know that God has never failed me over the 40 years that I've been serving him. He's been faithful to me and he's kept me for 40 years, 42 years. The disciples were learning that the Messiah meant something different to them than their political aspirations, their political dreams. In the text we looked at this morning, Jesus was teaching his disciples that they had to follow him with their cross to Calvary. The disciples were being forced by Jesus 
to make a decision. Did they believe that Jesus' mission was worth more than life itself? Do you believe that Jesus' mission is worth more than life itself? Did they want to sit on the thrones of this world or did they want to see the kingdom of God? Joshua said to God's people, choose this day whom you'll serve. And I'm saying this morning, you know, we need to be faced with this question every once in a while. Choose this day whom you will serve. I want us to pray. Can we stand and pray as I end this thing? You know, if, if you're hearing this message this morning, you know, God is speaking to you. If you're hearing it, God is speaking to you. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see and to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. They didn't see it. We're so blessed in what we hear and what we've seen, and we're going to give an account for what we have been blessed with. Jesus said to go and make disciples. I confess I haven't been the best disciple maker. I've gone a little, but I need to go, period, and make disciples. We all need to go and make disciples. You know, we should be praying and working and asking the Lord, okay, Lord, you know, we have our neighbors, we have our friends that we talk to. You know, there's different ways that we can go and make disciples. And I think that, you know, we can go to strangers and we can present the gospel to them and, and we can, you know, learn how to be fishers of men. But then with our neighbors, we don't need to be preaching at them all the time and, you know, pushing them away. But we need to be friends with them, befriend with them and invite them over and, and be there for them when they go through crisis. Because everybody goes through crisis. You know, there's all kinds of evangelism that all of us need to be doing. It's when we're at the malls and stuff like that. It's being aware of these people that are lost and there's somebody around you. The Spirit moves you to go and just say hi to somebody or whatever it is. We need to obey those hints that the Holy Spirit is rubbing in us because it's all important. All those different types of evangelism, we need to do it. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord God, Father, we know that we're like lambs going among the wolves. And we know, Father God, that we're at this time on this earth is limited, so limited compared to what eternity is. And I pray that we, Lord, would be a congregation, Father, that would do your will, would be out when we're out about, we'd be aware, Lord God, of people that don't know you. We'd be aware, Father, of, of uh, the gifts that are within us and these little stirrings, Lord God, that we would learn to use these gifts effectively for you and your kingdom. Be willing to pay the price, Lord God. Be willing to take our cross to Calvary. I just pray, Lord, that you would just stir in us a discontentment, Lord God, as long as we're not doing what you're stirring in each one of us to do. It looks different for each one of us. And I pray that you would help us, each one of us, to see what it is, Lord, and how to do it. And then as we step out, Lord God, teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.